really young, he loved watching, maybe you're familiar with it, the Busy Town Mysteries with Hucklecat. Anybody ever watched that or seen that or whatever? Maybe it's just my grandson that really, okay. He, 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 he loved watching that. In fact, I asked him about it if he remembered, and he didn't until I had mentioned the fact about the jingle that they played. When the mystery was presented, Goldbug would arrive at the scene and begin with this catchy jingle. Brian and I would sing this. So it's about 35 seconds. Guys, if you hit the next slide, it'll, it'll play. And maybe this will stay in your mind for a long time. So, again, I, I, I still can sing the song. I mean, I, I, this was years ago when that happened. But the questions are really good. Who, what, why, how? Who, what, when, where, why, how? Uh, those are all good questions to ask when you're trying to figure out a mystery. Well, this morning's text is, in a sense, a mystery. And, and solving this mystery gives us the knowledge that will strengthen us during times of unjust suffering. Uh, we're going to have to wait, as we said earlier, we're going to really kind of have to get, get the waders on and be willing to get into some water that's above chest level and, and, and kind of work our way through this. And just like Hucklecat, uh, to solve the mystery, we must answer some basic questions from the text. Questions like, when did Christ preach? Where did Christ preach? To whom did Christ preach? And what was the content of Christ's preaching? Again, when you look at the text, it says, "...being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, uh, while the ark was being prepared." So, when did Christ preach? Uh, where was it? Uh, to whom was He preaching? And what was the content of His preaching? Uh, those are some, some questions that we've got to dive into if we're going to be able to understand what Peter is talking about here and what Peter is trying to do as he seeks to encourage these believers who are going through some very difficult times. Now, I want to remind you what we talked about last week about some guiding principles as we deal with this text over the next several weeks. The first is an attitude of humility. We mentioned to you that uh, the, the theologian Miller, Millard Erickson, who at one time taught at Southwestern, basically said from his study that there's about 180 possible combinations in understanding this text. That's a lot. Uh, and so I'm going to give you to the best of my ability what I think this text is teaching. But I also recognize I could be wrong. And, and, there, and there may be some things where we agree and then we kind of verge off and go different in this direction. So we have to approach it with humility. Nobody knows for certain with 100 complete uh, uh, 100% complete certainty that this is what the text is dealing with. But like I said, our hope is, is and, and what we desire to do is, is to give you what I think that the text is teaching here, and, and I, I think it, it makes sense. Uh, but also we've got to strive for consistency. What I think this text is teaching governs how I, how I interpret Genesis chapter 6. 
I can't say Genesis chapter 6 is, is this way and, 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 and then uh, understand 1 Peter chapter 3 this way. It's going to govern how I deal with Genesis chapter 6 when it talks about that the sons of God uh, cohabitated with the daughters of men and you have these, 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 these men of renown, these great men being born. Uh, I, you've, got to, you've got to be consistent in that. And so, again, we're going to strive for consistency. So, so whatever you come to, whatever decisions you make, you, you recognize that, that it has this rippling effect that is going to go beyond just what you, say, what you hold to in 1 Peter chapter 3. And then also don't get lost in the weeds. Uh, and again, as, as we deal with some of the technical things, it's going to be easy to get lost. Uh, to get lost in the weeds, get lost if, we're, you know, if you want to use an analogy of a forest, to get lost with all the trees up there and forget what Peter is trying to do. Peter is trying to encourage these people. And, and these, verses, uh, they, 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 these verses continue to explain Christ's victory. And a victory that can be ours in times and seasons of unjust suffering. It's not automatically ours, but it can be ours. We can experience the same kind of victory in our unjust suffering that Jesus experienced in His unjust suffering. But it's not automatic. We have to make the same choice that Jesus made. And when we do choose to suffer unjustly for doing good, when we know that if we're going, that when we know that doing good is going to bring upon us unjust suffering, which is the will of God, uh, as we talked about in the previous verse, it's not that God's will is that God says, "Oh, you know, Greg, Greg, Greg just needs some unjust suffering right now. It's been a while since he's had some, so here, let me throw some out to him." That's not what that verse was teaching. What that verse is teaching is the fact that if I if, if I'm doing something and I and I, I I recognize that if I make this choice to do the right thing. I am going to suffer for it. I don't have to pray and ask God whether or not He wants me to suffer. He does. He does. If doing good means that I am to suffer unjustly, then it is God's will for me to suffer unjustly, to walk in obedience to Him, to do what is good, and to suffer unjustly. So when we choose to suffer unjustly for doing good, our unjust suffering is not futile. It has a purpose, uh, which Peter explains in verse 18. And even if it leads to death, death is not final. It's not final. So, to begin with, as we're building this case here, of what's, being, what's taking place, we want to remind ourselves back that, 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 the, uh, the, the, the conjunction there in verse 18, which was hatikai, or, it's tra- or you can translate it because also, or the ESV translated for also, Christ suffered, it connects verses 18 to verse 17. And basically, it provides the reasons for Peter's claim in verse 17. In verse 17, Peter makes a claim. He says, it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. That's that's his premise. That's his claim. It is better to suffer for doing good than it is for doing evil. And then in verse 18, because also Christ suffered. So the fact that we are identified with Christ... And here are the reasons. Because this was Christ's experience of unjust suffering. And because we are identified with Christ, this can be our experience of unjust suffering. If you recall, he gave us the reasons in verse 18. When he says, Christ suffered once for sins, that was unjustly. Christ committed no sins. But yet he suffered for sins. So we can, just as Jesus experienced unjust suffering, and that was the will of God for him to do that, because if he didn't do that, you and I have no hope of eternal salvation. Because Christ suffered unjustly, 
thank God that Christ was willing to suffer unjustly. Because without it, you and I would have no hope of salvation. So because Christ suffers unjustly, I can suffer. I can identify with him in that. Then he talks about the righteous for the unrighteous. His suffering was vicarious. He suffered for the sake of others. And so do we when we suffer unjustly for doing what is good. Uh, we're not suffering. It's not that people don't like us. It's that they don't like what we believe and stand for. If we would give up Christ, if we would turn our back on the truths and tenets of the Scriptures, then we would be accepted. We would be, we would be welcomed. But the minute we say that we, 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 we're going to hold to what the Scriptures teach and hold to what Christ teaches, then we're going to be rejected. We're going to experience unjust suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. So why, while we suffer in a sense vicariously, it's not the same sense that Jesus does, but we too, our suffering can be for the sake of someone else. We looked at the fact also, he says that he might bring us to God. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, and then we, you have that, that purpose clause there, in order that he might bring us to God. Christ's suffering was purposeful. Christ suffered unjustly so that he might bring us to God. We talked that the word picture, Paul uses a metaphor here that it's not, it's not used anywhere else in the, in the New Testament where it's likened that, that Jesus suffering. He takes us by the hand and walks us through the desert of unjust suffering to bring us to the, uh, his unjust suffering to bring us to the Father. And that our unjust suffering can have that same effect. That when we suffer unjustly, it can be a means by which God uses to take our persecutors by the hand and to bring them to Christ who brings them to the Father. And then also we find the fact that when he mentions the fact that uh, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, death doesn't have the final say. Christ was victorious over his unjust suffering. Even if our unjust suffering means that we're going to die because of it, that's not the final word. And so that, that was Peter's premise in verse 17, and so he ties it back with verse 18, but also Peter connects verse 19 with verse 18. It's translated in the ESV, in which. It's three small conjunctive words, in, in ho kai, which means in which also, or it can also mean at which time also. So if you, and I, I think that's the preferable understanding there. So you could read the fact when it says, For Christ also suffered once for the righteous, uh, I'm sorry, for sins, uh, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, at which time also he went and proclaimed. I, I think that's, I, I think, again, now again, remember, there's 180 different ways that people can look at this, Okay. I think this is, is, is the way to do it, but that doesn't make me right. But, but the idea here that, that it's speaking of, and because it connects verses 19 with 18, it's providing us the when of Christ's preaching. It doesn't tell us to whom yet. Uh, it doesn't tell us where yet. But we can know when Christ did this. And when he does it is important for us to figure out the other stuff, to be consistent, to be consistent when he does it, it's going to determine where. It's also going to determine to whom. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Our focus is going to answer the question, when? When? Because once you answer that question, then it's going to, it, 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 it's going to force us to hold to certain other things. Uh, and as we, as we try to look and understand exactly what this text is about. So in answering that question, we're going, to look, we're going to state the three prominent views of the phrase that's found in verse 18, uh, 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 where it says, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went. Uh, made alive in the spirit in which he went. There's three prominent views of that. 
Uh, and so we're going to look at that, and then I, I'm going to, uh, we're going to take the time, do a little bit of, like I said, a little bit of spade work here as we kind of look at the syntax of it, as we look at a series of three participles that Peter uses. He forms a series of three, and, and, and I think that, that helps to bolster and, and help to, to give proof and to defend the position that I'm going to present to you today. So what are the three major understandings that are held by Orthodox Christians, okay? Orthodox Christians, uh, uh, as it relates to this passage of Scripture. Well, the first understanding is that Christ preached through Noah to Noah's generation. Look at the text again. Uh, It says that being put to death in the flesh is a reference to his earthly life. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, which they would say is a reference to his spiritual life. And then it says, in which which he went and proclaimed. That idea of in which there is saying that it's talking about a similarity there. That Christ, uh, he's talking about the, the, that in his earthly life, he died, a reference to his earthly, his, his earthly realm, but it's also talking about uh, that he was resurrected in, in spiritual. This, you have a spiritual realm in which he continued to live even after his crucifixion. Not that there's not, they're not denying a bodily resurrection, but, but, but you had that Christ lived in his spiritual realm. There was an earthly realm of his existence, a physical realm of his existence, and a spiritual realm of his existence. Christ lives in a resurrected body. He lives in the spiritual realm. He's got a resurrected body, but he, he in a glorified body, bodies like you and I will eventually have. And so what they're saying is, is that what Peter does here is he's talking about, he, he moves from Christ's post-resurrection existence to Christ's pre-incarnate existence. That here he's talking about in which, uh, when it says in verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Now again, all, so we're not going to talk about who they're identifying and so forth, uh, uh, but basically what, he's, what they're saying here is that in Christ's pre, pre-incarnate existence prior to his birth in Bethlehem, which is similar to his post-resurrection uh, existence and experience, when he preached by the Spirit uh, through Noah to warn them of God's judgment. And they use the text, when God's patience, God's patience, that God, God is preaching to them, but there's other passages of Scripture. Uh, look, go back a couple chapters to 1 Peter chapter 1 and look at verse 11. First Peter, well, let's start at verse 10. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Peter says that when the prophets are preaching, the Spirit of Christ is within them preaching to the people of that day and time. So they say, well, here you have an example of Christ doing that, And so what we have going on in chapter 3 is another example of Christ doing that, except preaching through the prophets, he's preaching through Noah. And and, and you see, uh, when you go back to Genesis chapter 6, and in Genesis chapter 6, and in verse 3, Genesis chapter 6 and verse 3, verse 3 here, it says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. That verse is not talking about a, 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 a different, uh, a, a, a lifetime expectancy. 
God hasn't changed the lifetime expectancy to 120 years. What's going on in that verse is basically God gave, God gave humanity. Noah preached for 120 years as he's building the ark. As he's building the ark. It took him a long time. He, Noah had, the, the joke is, no wonder Noah got drunk after the flood was over because he was in a building project for 120 years. You know? that's, that's, that, that's, kinda, that's the pastoral joke that everybody talks about. You know? and, and so here he is. For 120 years, he, God is warning the people, warning them and warning them and warning them that he's going to judge. And at the end of the 120 years, you only have eight people going into the ark. That's it. Noah's wife, his, his sons, three sons, and their wives. And so you see the, the patience of God, which is what the verse talks about back in Peter, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. So that's, that's, that, that's the first interpretation, that what you have going on here is the fact that in verse 19, uh, it's talking about Christ's pre-incarnate state, and he's preaching and, and warning uh, uh, through Noah, uh, the, the, the people as far, as far as God's judgment. And, and again, we could expand upon that and expand upon that interpretation, but we, we simply just don't have the time. The second interpretation is this, is that during the time that Christ's body was in the tomb, his spirit was preaching to the, spirit, to, to the spirits in prison. Uh, to the spirits in prison. And, and basically it's Christ's descent into, and then Christ's descent into hell, Christ's descent into uh, Hades, and where he kind of empties out Hades, uh, and and uh, you know you've got the two different you have the two different I'm sorry Hades and Sheol you had the two different compartments and so he goes and he preaches and he empties out uh, the uh, par- I'm sorry paradise and, and 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 Hades he empties out paradise he takes them back with him up to heaven and so that's kind of the idea here uh, and, and and so you, you look at that text and he's, when when you read it so in uh, in verse 18 uh, where it says being put to death in the flesh. Uh, but made alive in the Spirit. So while he's dead in the flesh for those three days, he's alive in the Spirit. And during that time, he goes and he preaches during those three days between the time of his death and the time of his resurrection, he's preaching to the spirits in prison. And he empties out paradise and takes them with him. And and one of the passages that that people will will connect that to is in the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians chapter 4 and in verses 8 through 10. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Where it says, Therefore it, is, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, of, uh, to the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now again, we don't have time to get into all of that, but that's the second understanding. The third understanding is how I understand this passage of Scripture. That basically what you've got going on in 1 Peter is, is, is simply a reference to Christ's death, his crucifixion, being put to death. Uh, the text says being, being, put, uh, being uh, put to death in the flesh and then his resurrection, but made alive in the spirit. And that's all it simply is here. That basically in his, carnation, his, in his incarnation, his earthly existence, he was put, uh, he was put to death. But death does not have the final word. In fact, I understand, I think the better understanding, that's why I think this is poetry, because being poetry, you can have a little bit of, 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 of leeway with some of the wording of it. 
I think a better understanding uh, of this text is being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by, and that's a, that's a proper way of interpreting, it's a dative, you can use in, by, and there's a whole a lot of things that you can use, but by the Spirit, so they don't have to agree. Now, if, if this was not poetry, it would have to agree, whatever in, whatever it's, whether it's in or by, it's got to be in or by in the other one. But, but you can be put to death in the flesh, but raised to life by the Spirit. And poetry allows that. Poetry allows us being able to do that. And so I believe that by the Spirit, He was made alive, which is a synonym for His resurrection. That when the Bible talks about being, Christ being raised by the Spirit, it's another way of saying He resurrected. So what you have going on here is the death of Christ, His crucifixion, and His resurrection. And for example, we'll look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and look at verse 11. Romans chapter 8 and verse 11. Romans 8 verse 11 says this, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The agent of Christ's resurrection was the Holy Spirit. Uh, when it talks about the, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Him, which I think is a reference to the Father, the Spirit of Him raised Jesus from the dead. And that same Spirit dwells in me as a believer. And because that same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, my mortal body one day is going to be raised from the dead. That's my hope. Because Christ is raised from the dead, I'm going to be raised from the dead. Which is why Peter says when he writes, if, if there's no resurrection, we are, we are of all people most miserable. Because our hope of the resurrection is found in the fact that the Spirit of God resides in us. And because this is what the Spirit did for Christ, and because I'm identified in Christ, because I possess the Spirit of God, like He possessed the Spirit of God, then I'm going to be raised raised from the dead. So, I, I, that, that's my understanding of the passage. That what Peter's talking about here is simply a, 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 a contrast between the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And this understanding, I believe, is most consistent with the syntax. Now, here's where we kind of do a little bit of spade work here. Again, as you know, syntax is how a sentence is structured. You know, you can talk, uh, you know, who's, who's the Star Wars guy? Uh, Yoda, you know. Uh, you know, we talk, who, who did a Yoda talk? You know, where Yoda talks backwards and stuff. It's a, he moves his syntax around, Okay. And so syntax is how a sentence is structured. And when you look at verse 18, the syntax of verse 18, it's all structured as a contrast. Verse 18 is, is one big contrast. For example, look at verse 18 again. Who does Christ... Christ suffered once for sins. For who? Somebody read it. The righteous for the unrighteous. Are those opposites? Is that a contrast? You have the righteous... You have the unrighteous. In the Greek text, you have also, we talked about this last time, you have the, you have the phrase men day. You have men, in, in the, when it says being put to death in the flesh, men is in there, but made alive in the spirit, day is in there. When you have a men and a day, basically you could translate it this way. On the one hand this, but on the other hand this. So you could, if you wanted to give it kind of a wooden translation, you could translate it this way in verse 18. On the one hand, being put to death in the flesh, but on the other hand, made alive by the Spirit. Those are contrasts, aren't they? 
Those are contrasts. Uh, you could also translate it with the word although. Although he was put to death in the flesh, he was made alive by the Spirit. So you have another contrast there. So again, you have these contrasts that are taking place. But there's more than just that. The remaining contrasts qualifies the purpose clause so that he might bring us to God, explaining the means or how. He says in verse 18, For Christ also suffered for, the right, for, for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's the purpose clause. Why does Christ suffer for sins? Why does Christ suffer the righteous one for the unrighteous one? He does so so that he might take us by the hand and bring us to the Father. Take us by the hand and bring us to the Father. How is that accomplished? What's the means by which that occurs? Well, that's what Peter begins to talk about when he says, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Here you have a contrast. And you have two passive participles. The two passive participles, again, it means action being done. Passive means the action is being done to them. Put to death. That's a participle. Uh, Made alive. That's a participle in the Greek. They're passive. Something else is acting. Something or someone else is acting upon them. And those two participles are then followed by two, which 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 nouns that are datives uh, that basically uh, uh, deals with uh, well, we can deal with location and, and and so forth. But but they're also opposite. So you have these two participles that are opposite, put to death, made alive. That's pretty opposite. And then you have these two datives that are opposite, flesh, spirit. So you have all these these contrasts in here. Righteous, unrighteous. On the one hand, but on the other hand. Uh, uh, Death, uh, alive. Put to death, made alive. Spirit, flesh. You have all these contrasts that are going here. And by the way, Peter just kind of does it in a staccato fashion. In each part of the contrast of of being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, Peter only uses three words in each phrase. Just the three words in each phrase. The first phrase is thanatoithes men sarkai. So those of you, thanatos, anybody that, that name sound familiar? Anybody? Thanatos is Greek for death. Just that, That's Greek for death. And so you have thanatoithes men, there's the men, sarkai. Put to death on the one hand in flesh. Put to death on the one hand in flesh. So again, it's passive. Who did it? Now we know Christ says, I lay down my life. So that's one aspect. Christ laid down his life. Nobody took it. But also, they, also look at Isaiah chapter 53. Look at Isaiah chapter 53. In Isaiah chapter 53, and look at verse 10. Isaiah 53 and verse 10. Yet Because remember, Peter quotes from verses 11 and 12, when he tries the, the righteous for the unrighteous or the just for the unjust, Peter is referencing back to Isaiah 53, verses 11 and 12. But look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He, was, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. It was the will of the Lord. It was the will of Yahweh to crush him. Look at Acts chapter 4. Look at Acts chapter 4. Look at 
one of the most fascinating things of Scripture. Acts chapter 4, and look at verse 23. Acts chapter 4 and verse 23. In fact, well... Um, Uh, what did I do? Okay, it's basically the passage of scripture. I don't. I, I put down the wrong passage. It's basically the passage of scripture. Where Peter, where, where, where the, the, the being preached, and Peter basically says that that th- through the predetermined counsel of God, that God was God was to crucify Jesus, but also by 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 the hands of, of, of men, by the hands of men. Um, gosh, Greg, it was. Yeah. Is that it, Robert? Yeah, that's it. Thank you, Robert. A- Acts chapter two and verse twenty-three. Acts chapter 2 and verse 23. Thank you. Let's start in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man arrested to you by God, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The crucifixion was no accident. The crucifixion was within the plan and purposes of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Even though it was within the plan and purpose of God, these men are held responsible for their w- wicked sin. That, that, that's one of those verses that makes you scratch your head and try, to fig- and try to figure things out. So you have here basically Christ being put to death. He was put to death by the predetermined foreknowledge, counsel of God, but yet also he was put to death by lawless men who wanted to get rid of him. And then when you look at the next phrase, the next three words there in 1 Peter, which is the term zoopoietheis de pneumata, basically made alive on the other hand by spirit. Let's keep your place there in Acts chapter 2, and then look at verse, uh, let's start verse 23 again. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And look at verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then we read in Romans just a minute ago, Romans chapter 8 and verse 11, where the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Him, the Spirit of God raises Christ from the dead. So you have, again, th- these passive terms and being talked about where you have the Spirit of God, God the Father through His predetermined counsel. He has, uh, he, Christ is crucified, but also the men who've done it are held responsible for it. But then also God raised his, raises Him up by the power of the Spirit. So you have these, these contra- all these contrasts that are going on in this verse. And so in my opinion... To understand, if we go back and say, well, let's understand spirit as a reference to Christ's spiritual state. So he's going through, through his pre-incarnate existence. He goes back and, and speaks to them through, uh, uh, speaks through Noah to the people there. You lose the contrast. 
The the contrast break down. If you say that this is Christ's personal spirit, where he basically, uh, his body is dead, but his spirit goes and preaches to those in prison. Uh, He goes and and preaches to those who are in slash uh, Hades, uh, slash paradise, and he preaches to those in spirit. Again, you lose the contrast. You lose the contrast. And so I, I think, in my opinion, to understand spirit as either a reference to Christ's spiritual state or his spirit ignores Peter's extensive use of contrast here. Peter is contrasting something that he's using to seek to encourage these people. So, and again, as I'm understanding this, with this interpretation, whatever is going on in verse 19 is post-resurrection. Again, go back. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, his crucifixion, but made alive in the Spirit, His resurrection, or made alive by the Spirit, His resurrection, at which time also He went. At which time also He went. What time? The time after He's resurrected. After He's resurrected. So the when of of whatever's happening in verse 19, when He's preaching to the spirits in prison, Whatever, whoever those are, and however it relates to Noah, because it relates to Noah somehow. These spirits in prison relate to Noah somehow. Whoever they are, it occurs after the resurrection. But this timeline, I think, is further narrowed with a third participle. Again, we talked to you about put to death is a participle. Made alive is a participle. But there's also a third participle that's found in verse 19. Look at verse 19 in which he went. That's the participle. So you have three participles pretty close together. Put to death in the flesh, made alive by the Spirit, at which time also he went. Put to death, made alive, he went. He went. The third participle is grammatically linked to verse 18 because verse 19 starts off in which or at 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 what time also or in which time also. So again, there's another conjunction there which is connecting that participle to the previous two. It's connecting it to the previous two. And so, what it, again, which helps us to understand the when of Christ's preaching. But let's, let's take a moment and let's look at three, these three participles because they form a series. Because they form a chronological series. When, think, when you think about... The gospel is what? The death, resurrection. Okay? Now think about it. Think about the, these three participles. The first one was that Christ was put to death. Okay? Look, look back in verse 18. Being put to death. That's his death. That's his crucifixion. How did Christ die? Crucifixion. The next he was made alive by the Spirit, which is what? Resurrection. And in order to be resurrected, you have to be what first? Buried, okay? So burial is implied there. So you have the death, resurrection, which is implied the burial, the death and burial, resurrection. And then it says, he went. He went. Now, this participle, this same exact participle, is used within this context a few verses later. Look at verse 22. Who... 
Now, the ESV translates it as has gone, but it's the same exact word. Who went? He went into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. What is that? His what? Ascension. His ascension, which includes his exaltation. So here you have this chronological series with these participles. You have being put to death in the flesh, crucifixion, his death, made alive by the Spirit, as Romans 8 says, as, as Acts 2 says, made alive by the Spirit, which is, assumes his burial, resurrection, but then also just as important to the gospel, not only is his death, burial, and resurrection, but his ascension. His ascension is just as, just as a cardinal fact about the gospel as his death, burial, and resurrection. He ascends to take the throne at the right hand of the Son of God, at the right hand of the Father. So then you have his ascension. He went. And then again, so his death, his resurrection, his ascension. By means of these participles, I think. Peter is giving us the three essential elements of redemption. Crucifixion, resurrection, and the ascension. And his ascension includes, of course, his exaltation in chronological order. It's a chronological order. Death, resurrection, ascension, which includes his exaltation. So, with this series of three... It appears the win of Christ's proclamation occurs after his resurrection and either prior to or coinciding with his ascension. So, in which also, I said, I'm sorry, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed, who has gone, who went into heaven and is at the right hand of the throne of God. So, either after his resurrection, prior to his ascension, because we know he hadn't ascended. Remember when, when uh, he's seen after his resurrection, he says, don't touch me, I haven't ascended to my father yet. So it's either prior to his ascension, or it, it, it coincides with his ascension back, in, back, uh, back to heaven. So, I think with this series of three, it, 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 it appears to me that the win of Christ's proclamation occurs during this time. So, how am I understanding this passage of Scripture? I'm understanding it this way. Christ suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. That's the purpose clause. How did He bring us to God? Well, He was put to death in the flesh. That's His crucifixion. He was made alive by the Spirit. That's His resurrection. And then He went. He went. Now, part of that went... Is down in verse 22 where he goes back. He went, uh, he went into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers having been subjected to him. So how, how, does Christ, how did Christ bring us to God? How did Christ unjust suffering? He took us by the hand and because of his unjust suffering, he leads us to the Father because he died, because he rose, and because he ascended. Because he ascended. Again, Peter is using this passage of Scripture to encourage these believers who are experiencing unjust suffering. Unjust suffering. Now, I haven't answered, and that's where we're going to begin next time, I haven't answered the question, 
uh, to, to whom does he proclaim? When it says that he, he but, but made alive, at which time also he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Whoever these spirits in prison are, they are tied to Noah. They are tied to Noah in some way, in some form, in some fashion. So who are they? My contention is, is that this pro- the win of this proclamation occurs, I think, again, it can either be prior to or simultaneous with. I think it's probably simultaneous with. Again, and that's just that, that's one of those other shoots you just take of the 180 possible ways you can look at this. It's, it either happens prior to or I think it happens simultaneously. I think it, actually, I think it, well, I'm not going to get ahead of myself. Okay, uh, but, but it, that, that's what's taking place there, and that's what's happening there. You say, okay, so what? <laughs> so, again, uh, I, you know, uh, the, the professor there at Arlington, so what is the so what? So what is the so what? Bill, Bill's, Bill Smith, so what is the so what? Peter is going to give that application of these doctrinal truths in the verses to come. He's going to talk to us about how our baptism, because look at the text again, when he says, in which a few, verse, the latter part, we didn't read this part in verse 20, in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal uh, of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So, what does baptism have to do? And, and, and he's, he's going to make the case of, of how our baptism encourages us to continue to live faithfully even when we are experiencing unjust suffering. So he, the, the implications of this are going to make their way, the applications of this are going to make their way more clearly as we understand this, as, as we come to an understanding of this. Basically to say this, here's what's going on, here's what we know thus far. Okay, who, what, why, how, who, what, when, where, how, when, where, how, why, how. Here's what we know thus far. Peter tells us that our unjust suffering is like Christ's unjust suffering. When we identify with Him and that it is better for us to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And it's the will of God for us to do that. If I have to make a choice to do evil in order to avoid suffering. That is not God's will for me. But if I know I'm going to do the right thing and it's going to, it's going to result in suffering, it is God's will for me to experience that unjust suffering. God doesn't say, you know, Greg, I, I just love you too much and I really don't want you to go through that suffering, so you're going to get a pass on this. You're going to, here, here's, your hall, here's your hall pass. You're going to get a pass on this. I don't get a pass on that. I'm expected to do the right thing and experience the unjust suffering. So, why would I do this? Why would I choose to do that? Because it's the same way that Christ suffered. And when I follow Him in the path of suffering, I follow Him in the path to victory. Because my unjust suffering is unjust just like His was. He died, He suffered for sins. Sins that He didn't commit because He never committed a sin. My unjust suffering is vicarious because I'm suffering for the sake of Christ. I'm suffering for the sake of Christ. Blessed are you when, 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 men persecu- when, when men insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of things falsely about you on account of my sake. On account of my sake. Because you're identified with me. Rejoice and be glad 
because your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets before you. In the same way, they persecuted the prophets before you. So my suffering, in a sense, becomes a vicarious suffering. I'm suffering for the sake of someone else. My suffering can also be used by God to help lead people to Christ who brings them to God. And my suffering will result in victory because even if I die because of it, death is not the final word in my life as a child of God. And I can also take confidence in the fact, the fact, as he says that Christ suffered for this, I can also take confidence in the fact that, that Christ is, is put to death in the flesh, but he's made alive by the Spirit, and that Christ did something there that assures this victory is mine. There was something that happened after the resurrection of Christ, after his death, after his crucifixion, but all, uh, sorry, sorry, after his death, after his resurrection, and either prior to or coinciding with his ascension, there's something that happened that should encourage me to recognize that Christ is all in all and that nothing, nothing can get to me outside of the will of God. Nothing. Nothing. Whether it's beans in... The, I'm, I'm, I'm showing my hand. Whether it's beans in this life or beans spiritual beings. Nothing can get to me. Humans or spirit beings, neither one can get to me. And that's what he's saying. Again, Peter's going to unpack this as he seeks to encourage us. So as we're waiting for that, what do we do in the meantime? Well, in the meantime, we can take comfort in the fact that our unjust suffering is not futile. There's a purpose for it. There's a reason for it. It's not just something that we have to wait for when we die. It's something that is taking place now. We are suffering for the sake of Christ. We are identifying with His suffering. We have an opportunity to take people that we may may never be able to open our mouths, but as they watch us go through unjust suffering, we can take them by the hand, and even those who persecute us, that we are able to take them by the hand and lead them to Christ. And that suffering not only is not futile, but also our death is not final. Our death is not final. Even if I die because of it, even if I die, death and suffering does not have the final word in my life. It may appear to be, because there's a grave marker that seems to say that it has, but death and suffering is not the final word in my life. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, thank you again for this time. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity of being able to look into your word. We thank you for the Spirit of God that gives us understanding and clarity that helps us to take the truth of your word and and to be able to understand it, even those things that seem to be hard to understand. Lord, we'll never be able to understand fully your word. But Lord, help us to do the best that we can. And Lord, in doing so, take the truths that we learn and apply them to our lives to find the encouragement, to find the strength, to find what it is that you desire to do in and through us. We ask now, Father, your blessings upon your people today, that you would help us, Father, to to recognize the exalted position to which we we have. The fact of of, of this text as we think about it and and the reasons that Peter gives for us to to suffer for doing good and and, and, and that there's a purpose to it. There's reasons for it. 
and, and, the, and what, what Christ did, how His suffering ensures our victory. His resurrection uh, ensures our victory. His ascension ensures our victory. And so, Father, we just pray that You would help us during this time. We thank You for Your goodness to us. We thank You for Your work of grace in our lives. Father, we pray Your blessings upon each one here. Ask now, Father, you work in our hearts today. Help us to be uh, attuned to your spirit. And may we just praise you and thank you. Pray these things in Christ's name through the spirit. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, we're, we're not going to have an altar call. Uh, as you know, but we do have an invitation. And, and uh, I'm not sure what you're going through or um, what's taking place in your life, what kind of unjust suffering you may be experiencing. And, and these truths go beyond that. They certainly... It's the primary focus of what Peter is talking about, but, but they, 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 they ripple out even beyond that. So we just want to give you an opportunity to, to talk to the Lord uh, and, and to ask the Lord to allow these truths to, to, uh, to permeate your life this week and to help you through that. Let's go to the Lord in a time of silence.